Well, we come now to our study of the doctrine of creation. This is lesson four. And last Lord's Day, we began to unpack paragraph one of chapter four, which reads, It pleased God the Father, the Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. Now, I had asked the question last week, how did the divines know all this? Where did they get this information from? And, of course, the answer is that the Bible tells us so. When we consider creation, its origins, its purpose, make no mistake about it, it is a question of faith. It is a matter of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 again says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Whereby the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You know, John Calvin raised a very good question at this point. He says, if it's by faith alone that we know that it was God who created the world, what do we do with non-believers, the infidels, that is those without faith who acknowledge a creator? After all, Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the very appearance of heaven and earth constrains even the ungodly to acknowledge some maker. And hence Paul condemns all for their ingratitude because they did not, after having known God, give him honor that was due to him. And further, Calvin writes, no doubt religion would not have so prevailed among all the nations had not men's minds been impressed with the convictions that God is the creator of the world. It thus then appears that this knowledge which the apostle here in Hebrews 11 ascribes to faith exists without faith. So how do we answer that? Well, here's Calvin's reply. He says, though there has been an opinion of this kind among heathens that the world was made by God, it was yet very evanescent. That is, it was fleeting, it was vanishing. For as soon as they formed a notion of some God, they became instantly vain in their imaginations so that they groped in the dark, having in their thoughts a mere shadow of some uncertain deity, not the knowledge of the true God. Besides, as it was only a transient opinion that flit in their minds, it was far from being anything like knowledge. And we may further add that they assigned to fortune or chance the supremacy in the government of the world, that they made no mention of God's providence, which alone rules everything. Men's minds, therefore, are wholly blind, so that they see not the light of nature, which shines forth in created things, until being uh, irradiated by God's Spirit, they begin to understand by faith what otherwise they cannot comprehend. Hence, most correctly does the apostle ascribe such an understanding to faith, for they who have faith do not entertain a slight opinion as to God being the creator of the world, but they have a deep conviction fixed in their minds. And behold, the true God, and further, they understand the power of his word not only is manifested instantaneously in creating the world, but also is put forth continually in its preservation. Nor is it his power only that they understand, but also his goodness, wisdom, and justice. And hence, they are led to worship, love, and honor him. Quote. So you see, a true knowledge, a true understanding of creation, its origins and its purpose, is only going to come by faith in the word of God. That is our foundation. Now, when I say that, you might think, well, you could say that about every 
doctrine we look at, right? I mean, we're going to do a lesson with each doctrine. Our foundation is the Bible for this doctrine. But, and no, I don't plan on doing that, at least on my part, but I wanted to emphasize this point, especially with this doctrine of creation, because so many people drop the ball here. There's a ton of pressure, sir, I don't have to tell you, in the name or in the world, in the name of science, to adopt their methodology and their conclusions about the world and the universe and its origins. And for too many people, this pressure is just too great. It's too much. You get enough people saying something, backed by a lot of money, fancy production, movies, television, and you're just bombarded by it 24-7. There's a lot of pressure there. But beloved, don't fall for it. We have to be very careful with what we entertain in the name of quote-unquote science recognizing that much of it is done by those, as Calvin said, who become instantly vain in their imaginations. And they're groping in the dark. They are not working with the right presuppositions. So that was the major point I wanted to get across last week. Well, let's continue on with our statement from the confession. After having considered the purpose of creation, as we noted in the first two lessons, and the source of our knowledge, now let's consider the who of creation. And why? Our confession says it pleased God in the beginning to create. That God created the world is asserted all throughout Scripture. For example, Genesis 1.1, very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Isaiah 40, verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Isaiah 44, verse 24 says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. In Isaiah 45, verse 12, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. So scripture not only tells us who created it, but also tells us that this created act of God is what distinguishes him from all other false gods and idols. Psalm 96.5, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So you see the contrast. They're worthless, but our Lord made the heavens. In Isaiah 37, we read Hezekiah praying to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made heaven and the earth. And then Jeremiah 10, verse 11, Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. And at the time of their punishment, they will perish. Well, notice too that our confession not only names God as the creator, but specifically it pleased God, the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Burkhoff notes that while the Father is in the foreground in the work of creation, as, as we see in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where Paul writes, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist. Creation is also certainly recognized as a work of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We see the Son's participation in texts like John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And again, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, uh, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And in Colossians 1 and verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him are all things, uh, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then we see the Holy Spirit's participation indicated in texts like Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In Job 33-4, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In Psalm 104-30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Again, Burkhoff writes, the work of creation was not divided among the three persons, but the whole work, though from different aspects, is ascribed to each one of the persons. All things are at once out of the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Now let me just add at this point that this participation of all three members of the Godhead in the work of creation should not, at least in my mind, come as a surprise given what we have already established in our previous lessons regarding the purpose of God, or the purpose of creation. Because after all, if the work of creation is the execution of God's eternal decree, and if the governing principle of that decree is the manifestation of his glory via a work of salvation for which all three persons of the Godhead have covenanted together to perform, and it doesn't surprise me that all three would be involved in the work of creation. In other words, we have no problem acknowledging that all three persons of the Godhead are involved in the work of salvation. We all get that. But if that's the case, shouldn't we expect all three persons to be involved in the work of creation, given that creation serves the redemptive purposes of God? To me, in, that, in my mind, it just seems like a no-brainer. Uh, even uh, uh, Joe Moorcraft writes, although God was under no sense of compulsion or need to create the universe, he did have his own wise and holy reasons for creating all things. The Bible helps us see this important point by describing the creation of the universe as the act of the triune God who took counsel with himself in its creation. Before creation, he consulted with divine wisdom, Proverbs 8, who is the word of God, the second person in the Trinity. 
he consulted with himself in the creation of man in his image, saying, let us make man. He created everything through the word of God, who is the son of God. And he created them in the spirit who searches out the depths of God, gives life to his creatures and beautifies the heavens. Therefore, the psalmist cries out, O Lord, how many are thy works. In wisdom thou hast made them all, and the earth is full of thy possessions. Psalm 104, 24. Now, if you read more craft in this, in this section, he didn't take the route that I did with superlapsarianism uh, in order to demonstrate this governing principle of the decree of God. But what he does point out here easily fits with what we've been saying. Warcraft's point here is that the Bible describes the creation of the universe as the act of all three persons. And it does this in order to help us see that God in his own wise and holy reasons for creating all things or his purpose is what we've highlighted in the first two lessons. All three members of the Godhead are involved in the work of creation because the work of creation is the execution that eternal decree, the purpose of which is to glorify himself in a redemptive work that he established by a covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, I can't imagine the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenanting with one another to perform this work of redemption. And then when it came time to actually execute that plan in time and space, the Son and the Father just sit on the sidelines. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But regardless of whether it makes sense to me or not, we clearly see from Scripture that all three persons participate in the work of creation. And since we see that this work of creation is grounded in that eternal purpose of God, we see furthermore, and my second point for today, is that such a work is a free act of God. Again, Burkhoff writes, creation is sometimes represented as a necessary act of God, rather than as a free act determined by his sovereign will. The old theories of emanation and their modern counterpart, the pantheistic theories, naturally make the world but a mere moment in the process of divine evolution. And he references Spinoza and Hegel. And therefore regard the world as a necessary act of God. And the necessity which they have in mind is not a relative necessity resulting from the divine decree, but an absolute necessity which follows from the very nature of God, from his omnipotence, for example, in origin, or from his love. However, this is not the scriptural position. The only works of God that are inherently necessary with the necessity resulting from the very nature of God are the opera ad intra, that is, the works of the separate persons within the divine being, generation, filiation, and procession. To say that creation is a necessary act of God is also to declare that it's just as eternal as those imminent works of God. Whatever necessity may be described to God's opera ad extra is a necessity that's conditioned by the divine decree and the resulting constitution of things. It is a necessity dependent upon the sovereign will of God and therefore no necessity in the absolute sense of the word, end quote. So, to paraphrase Burkhoff here, what he's saying is that God was under no compulsion, no necessity to create the world. There's nothing about his nature that necessitated this work, which is just another way of pointing out, how many of you have heard this said before? Well, you know, God was lonely and he needed someone to love. And so he created us. I've heard this a thousand times. What Burkhoff is pointing out here is that thinking is absurd. 
if we're going to talk about the work of creation being a necessity, it's only necessary in order to execute his decree, which he sovereignly and freely chose to determine. That's it. There's no necessity based on any deficiencies within God or because he just couldn't get along without you and me. The Bible teaches us that God created all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Revelation 4, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Scripture also teaches us that God is self-sufficient. So there is no lack or deficiency in his being that necessitated that he create you and me, nor is God dependent upon any of us in any way. Acts 17, Paul says there to the Gentiles, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath in everything. Beloved, it is absolutely absurd to think that God somehow needs you and me to complete him, to fill in some hole or gap in his being and his nature, when your very existence depends on him to start with. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And in Psalm 102, verse 25, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Beloved, understand that in this doctrine of creation, the world is not God, nor is it a part of God. God enjoys, says Burkhoff, his own eternally complete life above the world in absolute independence of it. Beloved, you exist for his purpose, and you exist by his mere sovereign pleasure and will. And so any form of pantheism or emanation as we read in the philosophers are pure nonsense. And it's just that blindness and that groping in the dark that Calvin spoke of. But even if you're not familiar with Hegel and Spinoza or the ancient philosophers, understand that such thinking can still infiltrate your mind. You'll still find ways to deceive yourself into thinking that God depends upon you and not the other way around. But this doctrine of creation establishes for us is the clear distinction between the creator and the creature. The clear distinction between the independence of God and the dependence of man, and between the eternality of God and the finiteness of man. Creation is a free act of God, determined solely by his sovereign will and pleasure. It doesn't need you and I to counsel him. He doesn't need you and I to inform him of anything. 
He doesn't need your wisdom and your insight and your opinions as to how he is to be worshipped and honored best. This is his plan, freely and sovereignly determined. And at the end of the day, you either get on board with it or you don't. And if you don't, know that there will be consequences. So just to be thinking about the implications that this doctrine of creation has as we continue to move forward into these other doctrines. When you start getting talking about, you know, for whom did Christ die? And, you know, what is the purpose and necessity of the church and the structure of the family and the structure of the church? Again, keep this doctrine of creation in mind. Keep in mind who exists for whose purpose. And don't get it twisted.